Good evening. This is Cinema 60. She's awake, she sees. She don't see. As long as she ain't the mouse, she can't see. Now here she's like dead now, sing. All right, well, welcome to our first guest episode of uh, Cinema 60. With us today, we have Aviva Briefel, who is uh, a, an English and film studies professor at Bowdoin College and has written such scholarly articles as Parenting Through Horror, Reassurance in Jennifer Kent's The Babadook, for Camera Obscura and Monster Pains, Masochism, Menstruation, and Identification in the Horror Film for Film Quarterly. Hi, Aviva. Hi. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thank you so much for, for being here. <laughs> My pleasure. So um, let's get into the important stuff. Why is, uh, oh, well, I guess first we should mention that uh, on today's episode, we're going to be discussing Rosemary's Baby. favorite of yours yes it is my favorite movie period has it always been like with the first time you saw it did you know instantly it was a favorite movie well the first time I saw it was in college uh, at like a film society event and I wasn't really into horror back then I just was you know kind of hadn't really explored the genre very much and there was a film screening of first the shining and i loved that and then the omen which completely freaked me out even though now watching it again it's a great movie but it's a little hokey um but i watched rosemary's baby and i was completely blown away and um mostly because i was trying to understand why something that in some ways just had you know, it didn't have a lot of jump scares. It just had a very kind of intricate plot that took place in New York City. I grew up in New York City. Um, you know, I could recognize a lot of the places. Everything was very familiar to me. Um, why it ended up really sticking with me and really haunting me. And that was a while back then. And since then, I've just been thinking about it a lot, both in my teaching on the horror film and specifically on gender in the horror film, but also in my own scholarship. It's just been a film that's just been coming back again and again. And one of the things that's interesting about it, and and this is something that I preface, you know, when I'm teaching the film, is that it's one of, you know, it's an example of a film that you have to kind of, I think, really separate from the director, because I find, obviously, uh, Mm. Roman Polanski to be incredibly... Uh, problematic figure, um, having been, you know, he was convicted of rape, uh, of raping a minor, and, you know, he's been basically, you know, he hasn't returned to the United States for a long time because he would be arrested. I mean, there's a lot about him, and I always preface my, my discussion by saying, look, you need to know this about this director, and yet knowing this about the director and his, you know, history of sexual assault how do we reconcile the fact that, at least for me, this is a film that deals with sexual assault and the experience of being 
you know, embodied as a woman in pregnancy or just in society more generally that, you know, really in some ways I find incredibly accurate and disturbingly so. So it's like this interesting contradiction for me. Mm -hmm. you've, you've become a mother in, in the meantime since uh, since you first saw this film. It has, has that changed your uh, your view of the film at all? Um, it has. I mean, much more, you know, again, in that, in that way in which there's definitely a recognition in terms of, uh, you know, the, the kind of way in which in pregnancy, sometimes you feel like your body is no longer your own or you enter a different state in society in terms of how people read you or view you or what's expected of you. But I also, this is weird, but I found it like deeply reassuring to watch when I was pregnant, like, which is strange because it's definitely not about a reassuring pregnancy. But often for me, the horror genre provides a way of like processing things that sometimes are too close in real life or that are just happening. And so there's no way of stepping back and thinking about it. But I find that the intensity of Rosemary's experience, but also the way in which the camera really focuses on her as a character, I ended up finding that incredibly reassuring. And in fact, when my, this is weird also, but when my, um, both of my kids were born, one of the lullabies I sang them was, was Rosemary's lullaby, the very famous <laughs> lullaby that opens and closes that. the film. Mia Farrow yeah. is singing that, right? The she song was, was yeah. And it's just, it's incredibly beautiful and incredibly haunting. And obviously in the context of the film, it's, it's terrifying and it becomes one of those moments where the horror film makes use of like lullabies or like things that are associated with children in kind of horrific ways. But it's a beautiful melody in and of itself. And it really, um, I think, carries, it, it carries you into the movie, you know, when you're kind of panning through the skyline of New York um, and then getting to the, the building, and then at the end, it really carries you out. And so it really becomes this, it, her voice frames the film in a way that I find very comforting and very effective. We should just briefly give a rundown of the plot here. Yes, yeah, sure. <laughs> um, before we go on any further, but so basically for Rosemary's Baby, which for the two people that are listening to this who haven't seen it, because I, I have a hard time believing anyone hasn't seen this at this point, mm -hmm. Um, Rosemary's Baby came out again in 1968. It was directed by Roman Polanski. Uh, it was also um, written by Roman Polanski and, and Ira Levin. And uh, yeah, it's about Rosemary, who is played by Mia Farrow, and her husband, Guy Woodhouse, who's John Cassavetes. And they've moved into this beautiful building in New York, which is the, the Dakota building, oh. which was where John Lennon was shot and uh, where many celebrities live. Gorgeous, beautiful. Um, we're going to talk about this building. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's beautiful from the outside in Rosemary's Baby. It's not quite so nice in the inside. It's beautiful inside and out. And <laughs> her neighbors are uh, Ruth Gordon and um, Sydney Blackmer, which is um, Minnie Castavet and Roman Castavet. And uh, yeah, she, you know, they, she moves in as this young couple. She gets pregnant and her nosy neighbors um, are very, very interested in, in this pregnancy, especially after uh, an incident where she meets a, another neighbor who says that she lives with these, these elderly people, and then that woman kills herself mysteriously. And um, yeah, so then from there, it's just this question of um, her pregnancy going through uh, the motions, as it were, and um, all these sort of mysterious things happening, and... Uh, 
Rosemary growing increasingly paranoid that these people and these these friendly neighbors are actually have a more sinister plot, trying to steal her child potentially. Yeah. Okay. No, that's a so great you're, you're you're skipping right over the uh, the horrifying dream that she has when uh, she conceives the child. There are three dreams in this movie that <laughs> I have to say I haven't I I like this movie I don't love it. But I think it's very interesting to talk about, and I have I haven't seen it in ages, and I rewatched it obviously for this, and I was um, I totally forgot about like all of the dreams, <laughs> which is the, the best part. They're the best yeah. part of the whole movie, and I couldn't believe it. But they're also strange, and they also bring in this sort of really weird quality to this film. What, I, what did you think about these these dreams, both Bart and Aviva? Yeah, Bart, do you want to start? Um. No, I'll, I mean I I love them, but I'll let you uh, I'll I'll let you analyze them a little bit. Well, they're really like in some ways. What's I find really gripping about them, or really effective about them, is you know is how uncanny they are. How they, in some ways, ground you and Rosemary in the reality of living in an apartment in New York City where you know inevitably you hear your neighbors. You have very little auditory privacy so she's kind of hearing what ends up being or what you know we find out are uh, the neighbors engage in some kind of cult ritual which actually involves the young woman who ends up killing herself right but she meshes that with dreams of her what seem to be dreams of her childhood in Catholic school. At one point, there's also a dream of the Sistine Chapel. And so it's this really strange hybrid of what's happening and what's not happening. Um, and in the rape scene, um, or the scene that, you know, is really part of this, you know, she's been drugged by her husband uh, with the help of Minnie's chocolate mouse, right? Um, and she's, which I love, um, not the drugging, but the chocolate mouse. And um, she's carried into this weird fantasy where the um, guy who's running the operator, the, the elevator um, in the building is the captain of a ship. And on the ship, there's somehow John F. Kennedy and Jackie O., and there's this like incredible like tempest scene and then she goes down and then you know it's it's very much i think really captures the sense that one has or at least what i have when i'm dreaming and when you're kind of in this state of you know constant discovery of things are kind of what they are and i'm going to try to make sense of things but they're also not so you know she asks jfk something he's like no it's catholics only on this boat and somehow that seems to make sense in the world of the dream and then she goes down and slowly i mean to me what becomes really disturbing and eerie is that the dream elements merge with what's actually happening to her which is this ritual that is that basically ends up in her being raped by Satan or her husband or both, right? And she has this moment, I think was one of the most important lines of the movie, which is, this is not a dream, this is actually happening, right? And yet then she, you know, falls back asleep and wakes up the next morning, not fully having remembered what happened. But what's interesting, like, I think it's just great because it puts both you and Rosemary, you the viewer, we, us the view, you know, the viewers, we the viewers, and Rosemary in a state of kind of suspicion of like, did this happen? Didn't this happen? Um, and so it really captures the kind of, 
very surreal, very uncanny vibe of, of the rest of the film. And there's so much in the dream that is not totally connected to what you've seen in the movie and it's you know it, it it does feel like a real dream in that sense where it's like well you know if i if i try to i can connect this to, to other things in the movie or other things in my life but it just it's very i think it's it's extraordinarily well done because it just throws so much stuff into this dream and you know there's no way of knowing like what what is what's important and what's not important exactly you know? Yeah, and then he, she wakes up to Cassavetes saying that, you know, yeah, it was fun in like a necrophile kind of way to, to yeah. essentially rape his own wife as she was uh, out cold, which is deeply disturbing, but also, uh, you know, like, like what, a, what a line, huh? Right. That, but you know what? I, so I got to ask you, so, so as somebody who loves this movie and, and teaches this movie, I'm very curious as to what you think about this film being called um feminist sometimes like do you think that polanski sort of fell into that by a happy accident because i i i'm really on the i don't think this movie's feminist but i but i can kind of see it but i'm but i'm curious about what you think that's like one of my main dilemmas about the film like in order to view it as a feminist film which in many ways i do um I have to separate it from Polanski, which is kind of difficult because he's the director. Although for me, in watching, you know, all of the horror films that I teach in, in this class and that I enjoy in my scholarship, I really try to keep in mind that the director is just one aspect of the whole cinematic process, right? That in some ways we can't say that every image, every intention, every thing we experience in a film is the product of of this kind of auteur director the single director so right. i think that for this film i cannot think of many other films that dwell especially from the late 60s on the experience of women in society right especially around issues of reproduction and issues of even like the kinds of agency that women have within the home or don't have within the home that are as resonant as this one. So I always like to think about this film as like a manifestation or an example of, you know, the female Gothic, which is like a longstanding literary and cinematic tradition, which basically teaches viewers or readers to suspect like domesticity, marriage, childbearing, like all the things that women traditionally are supposed to value as like the end all and be all. And that is essentially what this film is doing, right? That it's telling us like, why would you trust your husband, like this man that you're living with? Why would you trust like this ideal of moving into a new place and you've got like, you can redecorate and it's so amazing and everything's like right there at your fingertips. Why would you trust your doctor? Like, why would your doctor, your gynecologist, you know, have your best interest in mind? And so in some ways, I think it really um, reflects the paranoia that's so much a part of the female Gothic, but that unfortunately is often part of what it means to be a woman or any kind of marginalized person in a dominant culture, right? That you have to be kind of on the lookout always for your own position because other people might not be. And right. more recently, I think that a film that does that but does it with race rather than gender is Get Out, right? Which is right. a film that transposes the issue of paranoia as something that can be productive 
to the issue of what it means to be an African-American male, in this case, character, who is in a situation where everything is set up to trap him or everything is set up to entrap him. And the only thing that can save him is buying into the paranoia that his, like, you know, he has this buddy, Rod, who's, like, always just coming up with these what seem to be crazy scenarios about what's going on um, in the house. He's like, you know, white people always want to turn black people into sex slaves and shit. And at first it's hilarious, right, that kind of paranoia, but it all ends up being true. And I find that that's also what happens in Rosemary's Baby, right? That suspicion is your only way out. And I'm sounding incredibly paranoid myself, but I think (laughs) in some ways that's like what the horror film, the tools that the horror film provide to certain female viewers of like, yeah, mistrust the system, mistrust, you know, the patriarchy, mistrust those things that tell you how you should be um, in this society. I, I love all of that. And like, that, I think the first time I watched this, I was disappointed at the ending being so uh, overtly about like, like the child of Satan. I was like, cause I thought this was going to be essentially this sort of gaslighting film, which, which I loved and I loved all those parts of it. But then the way that it ends to me, because it's so explicit uh, about, and maybe it isn't, maybe there, there's something I'm missing here, but like, I feel like the ending proves more that Polanski thinks that having like the spawn of Satan is more terrifying than being gaslit by every man in your life, which personally I'd rather birth the Prince of Darkness, quite frankly. (laughs) Yeah, and it's also like one doesn't like preclude the other. You can be gaslit by everyone and bear the son of Satan. Like, interesting (laughs) about the, you know, it's like, hey. Um, What's interesting about the ending too is like, in some ways you can read that ending as deeply anti-feminist as like, you know what? Rosemary is like programmed to be a mother all along, right? So if you remember the very ending of the film, mm. right? So she dis- she basically crawls out of her bed. She's been told that the baby she delivered has died, but she's suspicious. And so she stops taking the kind of, you know, the medicine that they're giving her to anesthetize her, to make her fall asleep, whatever. And she crawls out of her bed and goes through the broom closet in her apartment and realizes that it's a passageway into the Cassavette's apartment, right? And then she sees her baby um, in this kind of weird warped baby shower kind of welcoming to the world scene. He's in a black crib with an upside down cross. Like all these people are there bearing gifts and like it's like an amazing thing for them. It's the year one, like Satan has come. Like, and initially she's she's coming in like grabbing this knife she's gonna you know you think she's gonna kill the baby and some of the satanists are super protective of the baby but then um mr Cassavet, the the you know the roman starts to kind of like see that there's something in her that's also drawn to the baby right that he's like no, no let her be let her be and then it ends with her rocking the baby and in a sense accepting it so you can see that as like, oh, yeah, any woman's going to fall into maternal instinct because that's how, what we're programmed to do. But on the other hand, sometimes I like I read that ending or I can read that ending as a strategy that, she, you know, what else is she going to do mm. in this situation? And in fact, when she makes the decision to mother the baby, whatever that's going to mean after the end of the film, Guy is totally ostracized, right? He's like cast aside. She spits in his face. He's no longer important to the cult or to her. Like she has claimed some kind of power within the constraints that have been imposed on her. 
And that, and again, going back to the song, the fact that her voice is the last thing we hear and that we hear beyond the parameters of the film, I think endows her with a tremendous amount of, of power um, that goes beyond the, the domestic, right? I also see it as kind of her accepting that the w world isn't this uh, wonderful place that she always dreamed about. I mean, she spends most of the movie as a as a total innocent. She's so childlike, and it's all about perfect apartment and and you know putting contact paper on the shelves and and just she has this ideal of what adulthood should be and whether she's seen in the movies or you know because uh, this is how she um, imagined her her parents were, but. She, she's very childlike for most of the movie, and I, I feel like w when she finally embraces her child at the end, it's her acceptance that, that life isn't all sunshine and roses, and that this, the, the world of the adults is not what she imagined it would be when she was a child. And, and I, I, I just, uh, just see it as, a, as her eyes are open rather than any kind of you know, statement about how oh, maternal instincts will always win in the end. Yeah. Because one of the things that's, I, I totally buy that reading, because also one of the things that, you know, she, what it was so interesting about the film as well is that as the film continues, it becomes progressively clear that she's not living in this idyllic world that's either related to the state of being a child or the fact that she, you know, from the very beginning, she's kind of idolizes her husband. Like he's kind of like a B level, like advertising actor and like and she's like bragging and theater actor and she's like bragging to everyone about him and she's like we're gonna have two babies and da 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 you know everything's like perfect with the contact paper and she's like but then you know more and more you kind of realize that she might be involved in an act of like actual you know that she's kind of suppressing information that is coming little by little to show her that she is living in a very insidious world with a very insidious husband and I think one of the moments where we see that is one of my favorite scenes in the film when she's trying to figure out, you know, her friend Hutch has left her this book and he's like, the title is an anagram, right? And she's like, what does he mean? And so she takes her Scrabble set, like a game, right? That she used to play with her husband and she unscrambles the letters and she finds out that, you know, through those letters, who Roman actually is and the, you know, this is how she discovers things for herself. And so there's this interesting unscrambling that happens there that kind of focuses her into the fact that she needs to look at the world in a different way. Similarly, also when she's in, you know, after she's delivered the baby and like she's starting to piece things together that there's a baby crying in the apartment next door and that like maybe she's been lied to, she in a sense then discovers what she's already known or at least what we've started to know all along, that her apartment and the other apartment are one, right? That there is no separation. So when she goes through the broom closet, it's surprising, but it's also kind of like we kind of knew that there was a connection there, right? So I think it's also her kind of battling against herself to figure out that these forces are turned against her and that it's now time for her to be like no one's going to help me i need to to step up and 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 do this right yeah and, and she has a certain amount of suspicion throughout the movie like when her original obstetrician uh, dr hill wants some extra blood from her she wants to know oh why do you need more blood what's going on here what's what's wrong and she she does she enjoys mysteries in a sort of you know 
TV movie or mystery novel sort of way. Like she, she notices that in the cast Castavet's apartment that all the pictures have been taken down from the walls right. because the the color is different yeah. um, in, in in those rectangles. And she notices that the that the the dresser has been moved in front of the closet because she can see where it was before. And and the whole and the unscrambling the the words using Scrabble. Like she she likes a mystery. And that Roman has the, a pier- has pierced it, ears. Like love that. And she's like, did you notice he has pierced ears? And that's like a yeah. Thing. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. But but she she realizes that there's, you know, that there really is something sinister going on, you know, that behind every like fun fun mystery there there is this sort of great evil that you need to discover, that you need to un, un, uncover. Yeah. And uh and and so she does kind of solve the mystery by the end of the movie. Yeah, when you're saying that I'm thinking about the film I taught last week which is The Shining and um has a similar kind of plot kind of development where at the very beginning when Jack Torrance is being given, you know, he's given instructions by the director of the hotel about what he's, you know, what his responsibilities will, will be. And then the director's like, oh, and one more thing. Like, <laughs> there was this, like, horrible murder here a few years ago. And he's like, oh, my wife is a lover of mysteries. She'll love that, right? And then ultimately the story is also about the wife, whether or not the Shelley Duvall character is a lover of mysteries, having to come to terms with the murderousness of the hotel and of her husband. Like that behind these kinds of appealing, creepy mysteries, there's something much, much darker Um, and often involving the home and the husband and, you know, that kind of thing. It definitely goes back to what you were saying about just that all women have to be paranoid yeah, at all times. Yeah, paranoid, like, you know? Yeah. You have to, to love the bomb and be aware of any time it's going to go off, essentially. And for me, like, one of the scenes that really, like, and I've watched the film so many times, but I almost, like, let myself kind of off my guard when I watch it, even though I remember what's going to happen, is that terrible scene where... You know, so finally she see she's starting to realize that Dr. Saperstein, or she realizes that Dr. Saperstein, her new OBGYN, right, is like part of this cult. And so she wants to go back to her first doctor, Dr. Hill, and she's calling him on the telephone in a phone booth in New York. And she's super paranoid because there are all these people hovering around the phone booth and like... She's like, are they part of this? Are they listening on me? Are they just New York people? Like, there's no space in the city. And then finally, Dr. Hill's like, okay, come to my office. She tells him everything that's going on, right? And he's, like, listening to her carefully. He's like, you know what? I'm going to get you a room in the hospital so you can deliver your baby normally. Why don't you just rest here in the air conditioning for a little bit? Just take a nap. And there's something so peaceful and wonderful. And she's like, you know, she falls asleep in this, like, position of safety. And, of course... When she wakes up, Dr. Hill comes back with Guy and Dr. Saperstein. He's told them, right? And so no one is outside of, even if he's not part of the plot, he's like, okay, crazy lady with some kind of like prenatal hallucinations. I need to tell her husband, right? And her doctor. Um, But there's that sense of relief that she's finally found help that I always find myself being like, you know, that sense of like somebody's helping her. (laughs) And then, but it really like, is not. It's one of the most like terrifying parts of the movie, I think. Yeah, it's not. It's not a jump scare movie, like you were saying. It's not really a horrifying horror movie. Most of the movie, most of the suspense in it, comes from you just wanting everybody to leave Rosemary alone. Just you know, let her be. Stop messing with her. Stop trying to get involved in her totally. in her pregnancy. You know, just don't 
don't you know stop knocking on her door and, and bringing food and and, oh my God. and just just leave her alone and that's that's a lot most of the tension in this movie for me is just her you know I want her to get a little peace and quiet and a little you know alone time and totally and that's the only moment she gets it in Dr. Hill's office very briefly exactly and then that's it and then but you're right like within terms of the neighbors I mean Ruth Gordon is like I love her so much and I mean she is also just such a tremendous part of this movie and uh, what makes this movie great for me and her role as the nosy neighbor and that you know that wide angle shot of her looking through the key you know the the people and just the fact that she's always coming at the wrong time so Rosemary's like about to chill out on her new like couch and she's listening to a record and reading a book and she's like let me come in and bring you know this other random neighbor and let's talk about you know things and like and it's just the sense of like oh this violation of 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 privacy right which in some ways is about you know some critics have written about this as like well that's just the experience of what it means to live in a city right you don't have privacy (laughs) you don't know who your next door neighbor is you can hear them you hear the pipes you hear so there's something about that that's also incredibly just about urban life at the same time that it's also about this experience of incredible precarity and, and horror I have a, a crackpot theory about this movie. <laughs> oh, I love it. Okay, what is it? I, it? There there seems to be a weird current of anti-Semitism that runs through this movie to me. Ooh, and I know interesting. That, I know that Polanski is Jewish, mm-hmm. and but I, I just can't help but feel like everyone is sort of implied other, which brings maybe, like, you know, because she's this perfect Shiksa goddess and, yeah, yeah, and yeah. her Mr. Woodhouse husband, you know, which... I think was meant to be Robert Redford originally, and then he, and then they replaced it with John, John Cassavetes, who's yeah. at least more racially ambiguous. So, like in a way, it's like a perfect uh, backstab for her when he sells her out. That's but really like, true. what do you think? Like, I think like Ruth Gordon, like she, mm-hmm. she just comes across as like in all these like Saperstein, all these sort of ambiguously yeah. Jewish names and pushy attitudes. It's very like. You know, and and that uh, and that Woodhouse um, sells her out for the chance at Hollywood stardom, which of course they can right. all readily give him. It's all very typical Jewish caricature. That's really interesting, and like Saperstein, right? Exactly, and then the the kind of and also she's from the Midwest, exactly like you said, Shiksa Goddess. Yeah, <laughs> she's Rosemary, and she's being contaminated. I mean, I think that's super fascinating, and like I wonder. Again, you know, the director Polonsky is Jewish, but that doesn't matter. You know, Jewish people have made anti-Semitic films and non you know, it's like it's right. not. But I think it's interesting, like, to think about that. And also the other thing that I'm, you know, this is another thing that stumped me. So Abe Saperstein was the name of the Jewish creator of the Harlem Globetrotters. <laughs> How weird is that? So, like, what, I mean, so there's this Jewish impresario who went into various, like, inner city neighborhoods and, like, found these basketball players, often non-white players, and kind of made this act. And so what, you know, so that, too, is so interesting to think about. I do not know how to, like, read that and why he chose that name or if it was just coincidental. or. And also, it's interesting to think about Ira Levin is Jewish, right? He wrote the novel. Right. Um, and uh, he also wrote Stepford Wives, which is another f- film about female paranoia. That's fascinating. And, um, you know, domesticity gone completely wrong. But I like that theory. I'm intrigued. I have to think more about it. I like because part of me almost wonders if Rosemary is like a bad guy. 
<laughs> like if she Ooh. has a sort of weird racist hysteria and that in the end maybe her acceptance of satan is like accepting like a more progressive <laughs> right <laughs> like wildly leftist lifestyle and that sort of it's not all as bad as she thinks i think i mean she gets to spit in her husband for being a piece of shit but <laughs> yeah. no absolutely and there's this incredible like shift to more i mean this is very like most of the characters in this film are, are quite white even though it's new york city and the exception right. to that is the elevator man who is a really interesting character actually um i find because he again he reappears in the dream and so there's this kind of like racialized aspect of the city that she's quite not quite hooked into but yet is there and i think that also when you have the the baptism or maybe the circumcision of the you know <laughs> Of the baby Satan, <laughs> are we going to get in trouble for this? I don't know. I'm Jewish, hello. But um, that um, you know, there's also like this guy who's like this Egyptian guy, this prince who's there, who's like you know, distinctly non-U.S., like non-white. And then you also have the very famous and very cliched uh, Japanese um, photographer who's like taking pictures of everything that's happening at the birth, right? And that's also this weird kind of signal toward some kind of cosmopolitan difference that can be read suspiciously. But I like that idea that somehow like Rosemary is being ingrained into a more kind of progressive culture. And it's interesting because in the novel, I've also read the novel, she's much more kind of, well, the novel itself is much more attuned to the kinds of discourses that were going on around that time in 1968 or 1967 with the novel around civil rights and Martin Luther King Jr. And like you actually have characters talking about that stuff in a way that's completely not you know touched upon in the film at, at all oh that's interesting mm. super interesting it, the only thing is that she um and this is another kind of semi-jewish thing when she's interrupted by ruth gordon and also later in the film she's reading um sammy davis jr's autobiography which <laughs> which is such a random detail but i was like that's so and which is funny because obviously she was she was in the process, I think, of breaking up with Frank Sinatra at the point when she was making this film. Right. So it's like a little bit of an in-joke on the Rat Pack. And like, but that's interesting too, right? Because the biography is very much about, um, you know, what it means to be a black entertainer in the U.S. at this time, right? Um, and yet that's, that's also kind of pushed aside. Well, I definitely think that the party that she's... Uh, that she enters at the end of the the movie with uh, with all these old people and the you know people of diverse nationalities. It's it's a much more interesting group of people than that uh, that, that party that she has earlier with a bunch of vapid young people. I mean, there's yeah. nobody there who's interesting <laughs> at all. I would much rather hang out with the Satanists than I do. I would that, too. Although you know, that, it's interesting. You know, young people. Like what? Speaking of the young people, you know, one of the things that my students often pick up on when we're watching the film and again talking about whether this is a feminist film in various ways like that's a really interesting scene that earlier party because you know she makes a decision i'm not gonna have any people older than 65 or whatever i'm just gonna have my friends and she basically takes over and doesn't let let ruth gordon in and is like and then there's this really interesting moment where you know again in terms of this the progressiveness or not of this film she's talking to her friends about how painful her pregnancy is and her friends basically shut out Guy from the kitchen, right? They kind of form right. a, like, ring around her. And they start talking about things like abortion, right? She says, I don't want to have an abortion. 
But that's like kind of a possibility in that circle, right? It's not like they're like, oh my God, how could you even think that, right? They're there for that. They're also there to be like, any doctor who's telling you that that kind of pain is just normal is a sadist, right? And that's a really interesting moment because it's another moment where she has a certain kind, it's the only moment where she's in a safe, all-female space, right? Right. Other than that, like, I mean, obviously it's not hard for for Guy and others to break through that circle, but there is that moment of like, okay, this is this is a kind of alternate story that's being told here. Well, I think that's what the most 1968 thing about this movie is that there is this real, it's it's about the, the, the generation gap in a lot of ways. It's about the, you know, the young and the old sort of uh, butting heads and the, you know, that Rosemary is this innocent who thinks that, oh yeah, adults, Adults must, uh, you know, they've they've lived a lot longer. They understand how life works. I it's, I I should listen to to the older people instead of the younger people. And and you realize that, you know, it's, I I mean I, I don't know what the conclusion is there, but there really is this sort of um, you know push and pull between young people and old people in this movie. And that's you know so much of what was going on in cinema in 1968 was about yeah. that very thing, about uh, the young people having their own voice and fighting back against the older generation. And- exactly. And then you have uh, Cassavetes, uh, you know, after this encounter where she says she wants a second opinion and he screams at her uh, for listening to those bitches, right? Yeah. And he says, it's not fair to the doctor for you to do that. And she screams, <laughs> what, what, what about what's fair to me? Which is, I think, one of the more, definitely one of the more feminist things, especially after that circle of women telling her, like, there's no, this is not right, there's it's no way. Okay, yeah. But it's also, it's funny, too, because then I feel like there's a, there's like a whole parallel, like, of what the, the wellness movement that's currently happening, you know? And, and yeah. I think that's definitely a late 60s thing about going back to nature and, like, no, I'm going to take these herbs. I don't want to take these, like, pills and, like, you know, this sort of airy fairy. Yeah. Um, health thing about you know well i don't you know this how could i feel bad it's all natural kind of stuff it's interesting it's an interesting mix because you would think that that would be coming from the younger generation but it's not and but maybe that's exactly why she gets pulled in by these older um satanists is that they're they're sort of appealing to her younger sensibilities like that yeah it's like the pre-goop kind of (laughs) situation right like that No, but it's also interesting, too, because I'm thinking about now and like, you know, so many horror films now, like the kind of serious grown up horror that we're seeing have that Rosemary's Baby vibe, whether it's Hereditary or Midsommar or, you know, even, you know, I mentioned Get Out, have that kind of vibe also of having this mistrust for the older generation um, and also, I mean, it's interesting that so many of these A24 films or Blumhouse films have often the iconic scene of like naked old people as like a part of the <laughs> horror. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, so you get that in Rosemary's Baby during the rape. It's like, oh my God. Like, and then you have that in The Witch, right? And then you have that in Midsommar and you have it in Hereditary. It's like, there's something about that that's also really interesting. Like, that's the way they're kind of citing that film, in addition to other, you know, more in-depth things about paranoia and whatever. But I, I think there's we're in that moment again now. Maybe it's, like, the suspicion of the baby boomers or, like... But definitely that's maybe what's kind of adding to 
this this new trend to kind of uh, rediscover more Rosemary's Baby type of horror than more of like a slasher thing or whatever. So is Rosemary's Horror like the original elevated horror? <laughs> well, that's a really interesting question. Like, I mean, in some ways, like I would say that it's psycho in some ways, right? Because psycho, mm. I mean, in the same way that it kind of anticipates the slasher genre, it also takes some elements from more 50s B movies and makes them a little bit more highbrow, you know, because it's Hitchcock and there's, but so that, but I think, yeah, in some ways, like Rosemary's Baby is one of the first films that becomes like hybridized with things like the melodrama or the family drama, you know, in a way that makes you ask like, huh, am I watching a horror film or am I watching something else, you know, which is, I think what we see with some of these more recent films like hereditary like obviously it's horror it's much more gory than rosemary's baby it's much but there's still that question of like wow this film is telling me something about the family and how messed up it is or it's telling me something about you know <laughs> swedish cults i don't know but like you know there's that there's that kind of sense of like the, the hybridized genre that i think rosemary's baby really um initiated or at least really made into a thing I'm only a fan of horror when it's uh, when it's elevated horror. I don't have a whole lot of use for for you yeah, know yeah. just schlocky genre movies, horror movies, and I think Jenna kind of feels the same way about it. We've we've mostly avoided horror movies in uh, on this podcast, so it's it's nice that to have you on to 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 sing the praises of a, of a yeah. genre that we tend to overlook. Great, yeah. So if Rosemary's Baby is your favorite, what else from the 60s do you think is like a must-see? And then what do you, do you have any like, uh, you know, I'm I'm totally just throwing this on you, so if you don't, it's fine, but do you have any sort of like overarching theories about horror in the 60s? Like, do you think that there's anything that was happening in the, during this time that is like really important to take notice of? So one of the films that I always return to and think about in relation to Rosemary's Baby, even though they're so radically different, is uh, Romero's Night of the Living Dead. if it was two weeks before Rosemary's Baby or Rosemary's Baby came two weeks before it. But one of them came two weeks before the other. Very, very, you know, um, close in time. But in each of their own ways, like, presents, I think, a revolutionary reimagining of horror that's based on events or issues or themes that are so salient at the time. So if Rosemary's Baby is in some ways a meditation on feminism and youth movements and suspicion of an older generation, um, Night of the Living Dead, George Romero's film, is very much, as many critics have discussed, a kind of Vietnam film, right? A film that is trying to think about what we do with our collective dead and how we think about the dead in a national context, but also takes that to 
in a very low budget way. And that's also something else that marks it as different from Rosemary's Baby, the a Hollywood film, right? Um, takes it into also the domestic space by looking at this small group of people who are thrown together, including an African-American man and like this old school family with a daughter and these two lovebirds, like these kind of annoying teenage like kids who are in love with each other and like how are they all going to react within this single domestic space to this onslaught and so for me 1968 thinking about those two films are again this presentation of two very different modes of horror um and two different ways of distributing horror like rosemary's baby was you know in major theaters and was whereas night of the living dead very low budget was in black and white and was screened initially mostly in inner city theaters and strangely in kitty matinees like <laughs> really <laughs> so bizarre which is why um roger ebert when he first like saw the film like gave it a horrific review and then kind of revoked it a little bit by saying wow you know what really threw me is that there were all these kids in the movie theater like why were they showing it at like kitty matinees which again is a good question you know but and people were cheering and kids were just like going you know like really excited about it it was something they had never seen before but i find it really interesting that that distribution was so racialized and so um targeted toward a younger non-white audience you know whereas rosemary's baby is very bourgeois and it's kind of extension because of polanski because of its setting in new york and the dakota and all these things so that's what i you know it's like it's almost like at that moment horror is kind of going to these two divergent paths and we would see like in the 70s like texas chainsaw massacre is much more in line with uh the romero kind of side of things the low budget the like really like almost you know just kind of like take the camera and make a movie kind of filmmaking as opposed to other films you know moving into thing, things like the shining that we're really starting to to see horror as a mass audience like you know really geared toward a an audience that would go to the movie theater to the multiplex whatever and see uh, a horror movie that's so fascinating i because i've always i was so impressed with night of the living dead and and, and just seeing how um how much great social commentary was in that besides the the creepy imagery but i guess if you're like saying that it was marketed towards children yeah, <laughs> or well, that you know at least everyone was sort of missing that for the 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 violence in it then that 100 explains as you said the, the sort of two paths of, of where horror could go horror. because yeah i mean like that the, the you know the horror that i like i don't i don't dislike horror i will admit that i get scared very easily so i tend yeah. to avoid horror but then, like, I can watch something like Rosemary's Baby, and it, it creeps me out, and, like, it disturbs me, but it doesn't typically give me nightmares. Right. But, um, but yeah, no, it's just interesting that, that might, yeah, man, dang. <laughs> yeah, no, it's so, and the thing also about, uh, you know, Night of the Living Dead, and this goes back to our conversation about the director's input or not. So the main character in this film is an African-American um, character. Uh, named Ben in the film, actor Dwayne Jones. And the film, because of that, casting has a very, um, a resonance with civil rights and also with, at the end of the film, this kind of lynching imagery that emerges and is really haunting. And Romero afterwards was like, I just 
cast this black character, this black actor, because he was the best for the part. Like, this is not politicized, right? This is not meant to be. But the thing is, the way it was received by audiences, and it has been since then, is very much as a movie about race. So right. that question of intentionality doesn't really matter because the, the imagery is so striking um, at the at the end of the film. And I think it, in some ways, informs later horror films like about race, like Candyman, um, to have that imagery there. Hmm. And I know Jordan Peele is definitely inspired by Night of the Living Dead yep. when he made Get Out. And by Rosemary's Baby. He's often cited both Rosemary's Baby and the Stepford Wives as, you know, huge influencers to his, uh, to his work. And he's remaking Candyman right now, which is so exciting hmm. to me. Have you guys seen that movie? I know it's not 60. I've seen the yeah. original. Yeah, the original. It's so good. Mm -hmm. Not, you know, Candyman 2. It's not good. But yeah. the first one is awesome. It's a little, little too much of a genre movie for me, but I do like it. I see why people love it. Yeah, it's just, it's so, and the score is so beautiful. Uh, the Philip Glass score is just so incredible, I think, for that film. That's like, it reminds me too, I mean, like you go, to going back about the, the director's intentions, I agree so much with you in the sense that it really doesn't matter at the end of the day, you know, like there there's something that's being put out there and, you know, their intentions are matter in the sense that it's interesting to know and that they should be um, considered, but half the time too, you know, people like... Uh, repulsion uh, you know Polanski's repulsion I think is is insanely feminist and and again yes. it's like this this guy <laughs> I mean this like horrible right exactly it's amazing what you you know to think of of Polanski and and then the products that he's made that in some sense have been very cutting edge and also the tenant I love that movie it's like the last of his apartment trilogy with Isabella Jani, who's like one of my favorite actresses when I was growing up, I was obsessed with her. And that's another, you know, because he made those three films, Repulsion, Rosemary's Baby, and The Tenant, and they're part of this apartment trilogy, which is basically about the horrors of apartment living. And Repulsion, Rosemary's Baby tend to have much more attention than The Tenant, but I think it's definitely worth seeing. It's bizarre. And he's- I never liked the, the Tenant as much as the other two. It's not as good, but it's like, it's bizarre. You know, it's a very strange, like, and, you know, and he's in it in an interesting way, and there's this whole, but, I mean, I also haven't seen it in years, so I could have a different, you know, view, but I remember really liking it, but maybe that was because Isabella Jenny was literally obsessed with her as a child. I mean, I do see people name it as their their favorite horror movie, so there's there's definitely uh, a lot of respect yeah, for yeah, yeah. it there, but it's... I think we I think we all should rewatch that one. I think so too, actually. Seventies, <laughs> I think, but I think so too, totally. The repulsion is amazing, amazing, amazing. Well, I think uh, is there anything else you wanted to ask, Bart? Um, no, I think we got to everything on my list. Well, thanks for joining us, Aviva. <laughs> yeah, thank you for having me. This was so much fun. Yeah, we'd we'd love to have you on again to to talk about you know some other. It doesn't even have to be horror, even. But I know that's your that's yeah, that's your my thing. But maybe Psycho, or maybe yeah. But there's others. I just want to. I just want to rewatch Rosemary's Baby again and have you back on. And <laughs> I know exactly. I could talk about that infinitely. So, but thank you guys. This was so great. Thank you so much. Thanks. Go, go, go. 
You've been listening to Cinema 60 with Bart DeLauro and Jenna Ipcar. The theme song is Io la conosceva bene by Piero Piccioni. The closing theme is Go Go Gorilla by The Ideals. Check out cinema60.com for new episodes and supplemental material. That's cinema-60.com. And follow the show on Twitter and Facebook at Cinema 60 Podcast. Thanks for tuning in.